0: Revelation chapter 5, Revelation 5 verse 1, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals and I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to even look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold. The lamb of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And the song, they sang a song, a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God, from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests before our God, to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads, and honor, and glory, and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders, they fell down and they worshipped. They worshipped. I think we get, you know, what it means to be casual, right? And we treat some things casually, especially if we're talking, you know, like events. Sometimes we talk about, you know, is it casual dress? Is it formal dress? Is this a casual event? Is this a formal event? Uh, So, you know, you think of casual, and I guess the opposite of that in that sense would be formal. The opposite of treating something casually beyond an event or dress or attire would I I think would be we we might use the word painstaking right I'm not going to be casual about this but I'm going to be painstaking about this in other words I'm going to give it my best I'm going to pay attention to the details and I'm going to give it every effort that I can um and you know, you look at, we were to ask the question, why do we treat certain things so casually and, you know, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing in certain situations, you know, I guess that depends on context and so forth. But if we were to ask the question, why are we so casual about certain things, we could probably get a laundry list of answers, right? I mean, there's probably all kinds of answers. One might be something like this. Well, it's just not important. Uh, you know, it's just not that important. It's a secondary issue. It's not an issue of first importance. And it's just a secondary issue, and so, you know, I'll treat it casually. Uh, maybe maybe part of that would be that we just don't care. I, I just don't care about it. It's not an area of my interest. I have a lot of things that I'm interested in, and I have a lot of things that I just sort of dabble in casually but it's not really areas of interest, right? And so those areas of interest, we we are painstaking about those areas. But then there are a lot of areas that we may have just sort of a curiosity about. And so we, we just don't care. We're just a casual observer of that. Another reason might be this. We just don't understand. If I don't understand it, then I might not take it as serious as I should. I probably should take it serious. I just don't understand. I mean, you think about this. You know, you, you, you get these instructions. You buy something, right? And uh, you're, you're going to assemble it, whatever it is. And so, but, but you don't know. You didn't write the instructions, and it's something you've never put together before. You may have a little bit of knowledge about how to put things together and use tools and things, but you've never seen these, this set of instructions. You've never put this particular thing together and so there may be some detailed instructions there that are extremely important. You just don't know about them because you've never done this. And so you may overlook that. You may just treat that casually because it's just some little, you know, uh, just just a little parenthesis here, but but yet that parenthesis is the key to putting the whole thing together, right? How many times have you done that and you've missed that step because you treated casually that step. And then you had to go back, take it all back apart and put it back together and went, oh wow, that was important, right? So it could be, we just don't understand. We, we just don't understand the full ramifications of that one particular thing. We, we could be sincere about it. I sincerely want to do this, and uh, but yet but I, I don't have the ability to do it. I can't do it, and so that may be a reason why we treat something uh, casually. It, it could be too uh, a part of a sense of well, I'm, I'm just not mature enough to understand that I should take this serious. Um, you know, we, we look at our children sometimes, and we want to emphasize certain things to them, right? You need to pay attention to this, and you need to watch out for this. And and, and yet, they're just not to the maturity level to where they see the importance of that. I've said this a number of times. When I, when I turned about 22, 21, 22, my dad became the smartest man in the world. And all of a sudden, the things that I heard growing up were like, ah, oh, wow, that's why that's emphasized. Right? I mean, oh, I see that because the maturity level. So that could be why we treat some things casually. But why do we treat God so casually? Now, we do. I mean, I, I, think, I think it would be, you know, it would be wrong on our part to say, well, you know, and, and I'm speaking in general here, in general terms, why do we treat him so casually? Why do we treat his worship sometimes so casually so that it almost seems like there's no difference from being you know, in, in, in some you know, setting on a Saturday night as opposed to being in a worship service on Sunday, right? I mean, we, we just become so casual about our worship of him. I suspect it's probably the same reasons. Okay, we could probably go, go through the same reasons that I listed there. It's just not important. It's just not something that's important for me. It's okay for you, but it's just not important for me. It's just not something I'm into uh, right now. And so casually, yeah, I'll treat it casually. Maybe an Easter, uh, maybe Christmas, you know, this or that. Maybe, maybe a special occasion, but it's just not something that's important. It's a secondary issue to me. Or I just don't care. I don't care about it. I, I I just don't care about God. I don't care about church. I don't care about worship. And so it's just this casual thing for me. Or in in, in that, it could be a total flat-out rejection of it. Just a total flat-out rejection. I am not going to do that. I don't know if you heard, I think it was last week, Governor Cuomo in, uh, in, in uh, New York. I don't know if you heard some of the statements that he made. He's He's kind of made a lot of statements lately. A lot of things come out of New York. But, uh, you know, Kumo was talking about how God, how how sort of things are flattening out in New York. And and the governor said, God didn't do this. you believe that? I mean, that's what he said. He said, God didn't do this. And he said, faith didn't do this. Destiny didn't do this. He said it was the hard work and perseverance of the people of New York, and this or that, and so forth. So, in that, is, is he is he treating God casually? In that, there's just sort of this denial and rejection of you know that's not important to us. That's we see that a lot, and we see that with unbelievers. But I suspect, in particularly when it comes to believers. One of the reasons why we treat him so casually is because we just don't understand the ramifications. We just don't understand the ramifications. We're we're not, in one sense, it's like what Paul says when he writes to the Corinthians and he opens that letter of 1 Corinthians and he calls the Corinthians, he says, you guys are a bunch of babes. I want to address you as spiritual, but I've got to address you like a bunch of babes. I've got to address you like a bunch of immature uh, believers. And, and then you get to the, the, the letter of Hebrews, and the writer of Hebrews is talking about how, you know, it's, some of you should be teachers by now, but yet some of you still, your maturity level's not where it should be. So why would we as believers treat him so casually? I, I suspect this is part of it, right? We're, we're immature in this, we, we haven't fully understood the ramifications. But, but I suspect there's another reason too here, and that is that I don't have the ability to really understand this. In other words, I'm really not a believer. I'm really not a believer, so I, I really don't have a heart for this. When are we, go, when are we going to stop treating him so casually? I think that's a question. I think it's an appropriate question to ask, too. I mean, coronavirus has hit. This has happened. We've been, we, we, you know, our church worship, our services, and gathering together has been disrupted and this or that, and there's, there's, there's this sense of longing to get back together. I feel that. I hear that. There is this sense of longing to get back together, and I'm thankful to God for that, and I hope it grows and it increases and so forth. But I would pray that when we do come back together, that we don't treat him so casually and that we don't treat his worship as if, well, it's just a secondary issue. But I hope what's happened through this is that there has been a growing, a maturity that's happened about us to where we understand the full ramifications of true worship of God. That's what I pray for. When will we stop treating him so casually? I'll tell you when we'll stop treating him so casually. It's when we grow, as Paul writes to the Colossians, and he says that he's praying that they'll grow in their knowledge of God. So when we grow by God's grace and our knowledge of him and what he's done for us in Christ, when by God's grace this happens, and when by God's grace we see the majesty of Of the Lamb of God. Now that's where where Revelation 5 is about to take us. Revelation 5 is about to take us to the majesty of the Lamb of God. And in Revelation 5, John experiences two emotional events. I mean, there's two emotional events, and they're packed full of emotion here. That leaves him anything but a casual observer of what's happening. He's wrapped up in it. Chapter 4 we saw the majesty of the one sitting on the throne. Chapter 4 opens. The second vision opens and John sees the throne, and he sees one sitting on the throne, and then we saw all the things that are surrounding the throne, and what it is screaming at us is that our God is transcendent, he's not like us, he's separate from us, and and you just don't flippantly, casually approach him. But yet he's personal. And the personal side of this really comes out in chapter 5, when we see the majesty of the Lamb. And if you remember in chapter 4, that ends when worship, John sees the throne, sees the one sitting on the throne, sees all the things surrounding the throne, and then where did it end? It ended in worship. And those hymns at the end of chapter 4, all directed towards God, all directed towards the one on the throne. And it's what we saw at the end of chapter 4. And the four living creatures, each one of them, six wings full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you. Our Lord and God to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed and were created. That, that, that chapter 4, the majesty of God ends in worship. But now you have to understand, chapter 4 and 5 go together. They go together. And what chapter 4 and 5 are doing, it's setting the stage. It's laying the foundation for the rest of the book of Revelation. Revelation. Because it starts off with seeing the one who sits on the throne. The sovereign creator of all that exists. Sitting on the throne. And then here comes the lamb. The majesty of the lamb. And there's two emotional events that happen in chapter 5. Well the first one is when John sees this unique lamb. The only one of its kind. And notice how it starts in chapter 5. There's the scroll. In Revelation 5 verse 1. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Now, understand, this is what he saw in chapter 4. This is the one sitting on the throne. It's this God that he sees, and in his right hand, a hand of power and authority. The symbolism here, we we need to try to get behind the symbolism and try to understand what John is communicating. Just like with chapter 4, trying to understand that symbolism that he's using Key here again in chapter 5. In fact, it's going to be the key to understanding the rest of the book of Revelation. Is get behind the symbolism. What is it that he's saying? He's, he's using language to try to describe to us what he's seeing. And the language is so inadequate to describe it. But we can understand at least a throne and one sitting on a throne. And the one sitting on the throne is the king. He's the creator. And he's sitting there and in his right hand is a scroll. The right hand, the hand of power and authority, and there 's this scroll now literally it 's book, but it 's not book like we think of book, where we have you know we pick up a book and there's you know front and back and it 's bound, and you turn the pages of the book and so forth it's not those those weren't those didn 't really come about until later. What they had were scrolls, and so these scrolls. Some of them were animal skins, but most of them were parchment. Most of them were, were made out of papyrus, and they were parchment, and they were put together, and they were long. Some, sometimes, you know, if it was just a short official document, you know, it may be several feet long. But sometimes these things could be 30 feet long. In fact, some of the, some of the, the New Testament books, take, take, for instance, Matthew or Luke, some, some of those scrolls would have been long. And most of the time, they, only wrote, they, they would only write on one side. And so here's this scroll that's in the right in the right hand. So it's rolled up. They would take strips of parchment, they would tie the scroll together. And what we're going to see here in just a second is that it was sealed. So here's this scroll that's in the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And what's interesting, this is unusual about what's unusual about this scroll is it's written it's written within. In other words, where you would normally write on a scroll there's writing, but it's also written on the back. So it's front and back. This is not the normal way they would do a scroll. I think the symbolism here is that this scroll is full and complete. There's nothing lacking in this scroll. So it's written within and on back, and it's sealed with seven seals. Seven seals. It's completely secure. That's why they would seal a document. If there was an official document... And, and what they would do is they would take it in the first century and, and, and Roman officials were, you know, they would, they would have a, a, a legal document, you know, from the Senate or a legal document from Caesar or a lot of times there would be Roman wheels and legal things and they would make these scrolls and they would tie these scrolls. And then to secure it, they would take wax and they would put wax on it and they would take a signet ring. There was a signet ring that had whoever was the person that this was their scroll or this was their message they would have a signet ring and it would have their their symbol on that ring and so they would pour the wax they would imprint stamp the ring on the wax and it was sealed in other words it was a way of making it tamper proof and if you received one of these official documents and the seal was broken you knew somebody had opened the seal somebody had you know tampered with it how many times have you tried you know you got a letter it's not for you (laughs) and you try to figure out all kinds of ways to look at that letter, right? I mean, we seal documents now. In the school, we deal with transcripts, and an official transcript has to go, and it has to have the seal of the school, and it can't be tampered with so that when the college gets it, They know, okay, nobody's tampered with this transcript. Nobody opened it up and tried to change grades and make them look better than they were and so forth. So you understand this this sealing was to secure it, to make it tamper-proof. And there's seven seals. So it's completely secure. It's completely secure. You know what's interesting? Paul in in, uh, Ephesians chapter 1, he takes this, this language of sealing, and you know what he says about us as believers? He says, we've been sealed. We've been sealed. But you know what he says? We haven't been sealed with wax. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God has placed His imprint, His ownership on us and has sealed us until the day of redemption. And He's given us His Holy Spirit as a guarantee. That's beautiful imagery that Paul uses and takes his concept of sealing. So... Here he is sitting on the throne. In his right hand is this scroll. This scroll is full, completely full. This scroll is sealed; it's completely secure. But, but the question that that, that we need to answer: What in the world is this scroll? there's been all kinds of um, conjecture about what this scroll was, you know, and and what did this scroll contain. I think the best explanation for what this scroll is is to understand that what this scroll contains is all of the purposes of God in redemption and judgment. It's all of the purposes of God and what He's doing in redemption and judgment, which also would contain the book of Revelation. Now John's going to have a reaction to this when he sees in this challenge that comes because there's a challenge that immediately follows this. It's the perfect, the scroll is the perfect, complete, perfectly secure purpose of God and redemption and judgment. And then here comes the challenge. You see it in verse 2? And I saw a strong angel, a powerful angel, mighty angel. The angel's not named. Is it Gabriel? Don't know. Is it Michael? Don't know. We just know he's identified as a powerful angel. He's not, a, he's, he's not some you know, little, little weak thing. This is a powerful angel. And what he's doing, John says, I saw this powerful angel proclaiming with a loud voice. Because he's proclaiming this throughout all of creation. Throughout all of creation. He's not just in some little corner of the world proclaiming this. This is a challenge that's issued to everything within God's creation. And this mighty angel proclaiming, and this is the challenge. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who's going to take it? Who's worthy to open the scroll? The breaking of the seals that we we see beginning in chapter 6. When these seals are are broken. The breaking of the seals. Again, this this is symbolism. It's symbolic language of the question is this. Who can bring about the purposes of God in redemption and judgment? Who's going to be able to bring this about? Who can accomplish this? Who can do this? And this challenge goes out through all of creation. Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Then in verse 3, no one. No one. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. In all of his creation, the challenge goes out. Nobody can step forward. Nobody can step forward. Now, if this were a Hollywood movie, then you, you, you probably know what the script would say now, right? You probably know what the script writers would do with this. Impossible. Distress. The world's coming to an end. And, and who, who usually steps forward in these types of movies? Some obscure, out of the way, nobody, Right? Sometimes it's a little child that comes up and cute little child and saves the world. There is nobody who can step up here. That's the scene. Nobody. And John has this emotional response to this in in verse 4 when he says, And I began to weep loudly. Listen, he's not just shedding a tear or two. I mean, he is saying he's, he's beginning to weep loudly. Literally, he begins to weep much. Why is John weeping? Yeah, that's the thing. I think as I read this, I'm thinking, why is he weeping here? Some have said, well, he's weeping because he's just frustrated. He wants to see what's in the book. <laughs> that's not it. He's not weeping because he's mad and kicking the dirt and going, oh, man, I want to see what's in that book. Come on, somebody open the book. That's not it at all. I think, again, if we understand the scroll to be the purposes of God, His complete, full purposes, perfect purposes in redemption and judgment, there may be a sense in which John's weeping because if nobody steps forward and nobody takes this scroll and nobody begins to break the seals to bring about His purposes, then we have no hope. Everything is meaningless. Everything is meaningless. All is lost here. Just remember what in the first part of this book he's writing to these churches, and there are things that Jesus is saying to these churches, they need this information. They need to understand this. They they, they need this information. And if nobody's able to step forward and bring this about, then all is lost. All is lost. Our faith, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 when talking about the resurrection, if there is no resurrection, our faith is, our faith is nothing. Ah, but hold on a second. This is better than any Hollywood script. Because what John sees, he's weeping I began to weep loudly because no one was worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And then John's rebuked here. This is a rebuke. And and it comes very forcefully in verse 5. And one of the elders turns to John and tells him, stop weeping. Stop your crying, John. Stop weeping. Stop weeping. There's something you need to see. There's something you need to understand here. In other words, stop acting, in a way it may be, stop acting in a sense so childish here. There's something you're about to understand that's going to change your perspective about everything. And what does he see? He says, stop weeping. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered. He is overcome. So that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And this is amazing. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. And in verse 6. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes. Which are the seven spirits of God. Sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. John sees first, and and, and again, you have to understand, Revelation is a genre of literature known as apocalyptic. We've talked about this a little bit before. This is apocalyptic literature. One of the hallmarks of apocalyptic, apocalyptic literature is mixing these symbols Because it's not like John sees, oh, there's a a lion, and then he looks, and there's a lamb. The lion is the lamb. It's mixing these symbols here. And what John sees is something so tremendous, so powerful. Again, the scene. No one can take the scroll. Who can take it? Who's worthy? John's weeping. No one. No one of this earth can. And what does he see? He sees those lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah, going all the way back to Genesis 49. Judah, the Messiah, is going to come out of the tribe of Judah. This lion of the tribe of Judah, and Christ did. He came from the tribe of Judah. But this really gets interesting, and this is something sometimes we just pass over because, you know, we get to the root of David, and we just figure, well, he's a descendant of David. Yeah, he is. But the root of David? Now, he's clearly, I think he's clearly taking this from Isaiah. Go to, I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah 11. And there's something interesting about the way that it's put in Isaiah. Isaiah 11. In Isaiah 11, the the Messiah is being referred to as this branch, this shoot. Isaiah 11 verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now who was Jesse? Jesse was David's father. But what I want you to know is, knows the language. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Have you ever seen an old stump, and coming up out of that stump are shoots? In other words, the, the original tree, the original tree may be cut down, cut off, but yet there's something still alive in it, right? And you see these shoots coming up. Sometimes those shoots can be big. Sometimes, you know, they're, they're, you see and you think, man, there's another tree growing out of that stump. Right? I think we've all maybe have seen that or get the picture here. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Then again in chapter 11, verse 10. In the day, in that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In other words, what Isaiah is saying in his prophecy, and what he's talking about is the coming of the Messiah. The coming of the Messiah. He's going to be a shoot of Jesse. He's going to be a descendant of Jesse. Jesse being David's father. Now there's one more place we need to go because here he's identified not as the shoot in Revelation 5, he's identified as the root. Let's go to another place. I want you to go to Matthew. The book of Matthew. The religious leaders had been questioning Christ and carrying on with him and trying to trap him, and then finally Jesus has a question for them. And the question that he asks has to do, has every bit to do with this, and understanding this whole issue of root of David. Line of the tribe of Judah, root of David, Isaiah talking about shoot from Jesse. This is the question that Jesus asked the Pharisees in chapter 22. Verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. Now, again, they've, they've been carrying on with him, trying to trap him. And it's like, okay, let's turn the tables here. And this is the question. What do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Now they had rejected him. They weren't saying they, they don't come out here and go, You're the Messiah. No. He he asked the he asked the disciples that, and, and they have correctly identified him as the Messiah earlier, but not the Pharisees. So he asked them, what do you think about the Christ? What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Now keep in mind, Isaiah. Isaiah clearly identified the Messiah, shoot of, David, uh, shoot of Jesse. In other words, he's going to come through Jesse's, uh, Jesse and David's line, right? Now obviously, Genesis 49, the line of the tribe of Judah. Jesus says, whose son is he? Well, they answered correctly, at least partly. They said to him, the son of David. I mean, come on, you got another one? Everybody knows that. He's going to be the son of David. Jesus says, oh yeah, I got another one. How about this one? How is it then that David, in the spirit... In the Holy Spirit. In other words, David not just dreaming. David not just making this up. But how is, it that by, how is it that David, in the Spirit, under the influence of God himself, how is it that David calls him Lord? Jesus is pulling from Psalm 110. And Psalm 110, he quotes here. The Lord said to my Lord... Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And the Pharisees can't answer this because they have no concept. What Jesus is getting at is you have to understand, yeah, the Messiah is a descendant of David. but The Messiah is not only just fully man, he's fully God. And therefore, David called his own son, Lord. Now the Pharisees couldn't get that. But they had no ability to, they, they had no concept of that. And so, and this is what Jesus is doing. He's turning the tables on him. And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare ask him any more questions. I mean, you blame them? My goodness, simple question. Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. Then how does David call his own son, Lord? Oh, Gee, we don't know. Yeah, and that's your problem because you don't see and you don't understand this Messiah, not just David's descendant, but David's Lord. Fully man. Fully God. Jesus will pick this up at the end of the book of Revelation. And he'll use this in uh, Revelation chapter 22. And and. His use of this in Revelation chapter 22 makes clear the point of this. In Revelation chapter 22, he refers to himself, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David. He's both the root. So, When John, when he sees this and and the the elder says, stop weeping, John. There's a lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David. He's the authority. He's the foundation. But not only just the foundation, he is a descendant of David. In other words, I think what's, what's getting at, what's being driven home here is that no one in all of creation could possibly take the scroll, could possibly come and bring about the purposes of God. It had to be somebody Outside of this creation, yet identified with this creation. In other words, it's a way of getting at the very nature of Christ being fully God and fully man. I mean, this is tremendous here of what John's saying. So here he is, lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David, and notice he's overcome, he's conquered. We're going to see how in just a minute. But he's overcome, he's conquered. The the, the idea here is that he's won a battle. There was a battle that took place. There was a fight that took place. And no, it's not the battle of Armageddon. And no, it's not some great battle at the end time. This battle, this battle took place on Calvary. And that's where this is going. That's why they're going to praise him. He was the lamb that was slain. That's how he overcame. That's how he conquered. So he overcame this struggle, this battle. The root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. You see it in verse 6 and between the throne. Literally, it's out of the midst of the throne. He didn't he didn't come from around the throne. What's around the throne? We see what's around the throne in chapter 4, right? All of these things that are around the throne. It's not that he came from around the throne. It's not like he was sort of slinking in some corner somewhere and then all of a sudden he emerges out of some darkened corner. No, as John's looking, one seated on the throne, there's God on the throne, scroll in hand, challenge issue, and out of the very midst of the throne he sees a lamb standing. Now, again, the symbolism is so key here because he's standing as though it had been slain. And that's a violent term there. He was, it, it, it's a bloody term. He didn't, it's not just, oh, well, he died. He, he died a violent, cruel, bloody death. His death on the cross was violent. And it, and it would conjure up images, at least for a Jewish audience, of the Old Testament sacrifices. On the Day of Atonement, blood was everywhere. Blood was everywhere. It would flow out of the temple. A river of blood. The multitude of sacrifices. Blood sprinkled in the Holy of Holies. Blood was everywhere. When Christ was crucified. Mel Gibson came close I think to capturing it. It was a bloody mess. He was violently crucified. The shedding of blood, significant here. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. But notice, he's standing. Resurrection. Yeah, he was violently killed, but you know what he's standing? He's alive. You see it? Resurrected. This is how he overcame. This is how he conquered. This is why he's able to take the scroll and bring about the purposes and promises of God in redemption and judgment. He's the one that's able to do it. So he comes from the midst of the throne and he's standing, a lamb standing as though he'd been slain with seven horns, horns symbolizing king, perfect kingship with seven eyes, all-knowing. Again, number seven here important, perfect, all-knowing, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Why are they sent out into all the earth? Maybe in this some sort of missionary type activity or, or, or something, they're sent out to all the earth. And then verse 7, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Can you imagine that? I mean, there's John weeping. Who can take the scroll? Nobody can do it. Nobody can step forward. Nobody would even dare step forward. Why? Because the one sitting on the throne is the one in chapter 4, and you don't just rush into his presence. There is nobody that can rush into his presence and say, Oh, I'll do it. I'll take that scroll. Give me a shot. There's only one. And he comes from the midst of the throne. In other words, the only one who can do this is God Himself. And how did He do it? In Christ. Yeah. The lion of the tribe of Judah. The descendant of David. Yet David's Lord. The one who shed His blood on a cross this is the one who did it now what happens from here we don't read what John says oh and I stopped weeping and we went and had a great meal together and talked about how wonderful this was we don't read that they sort of strolled out arm in arm singing kumbaya that's not what happens what happens is worship erupts. That's the language here. It's an outburst. The lamb standing takes the scroll, begins to unfold the purposes of God in redemption and judgment and worship just erupts. There's this outburst and there's three groupings here. And if you notice, each group gets larger. Each group gets larger. The first group in verse 8. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp. Now, I don't think this is meaning uh, when we get to heaven we're going to sit on a cloud and have a harp, or that you know the angels sitting there in heaven and play their harps. I, I, I don't think. I think harp here is somehow symbolizing some sense of joy, something that's joyous. And then the golden bowls full of incense, these are not incense candles. But, but I think the symbolism here in, in this incense, this bowl of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, these prayers are pleasant to God. It's a sweet-smelling savor to God. This is, this is Old Testament talk here. When you went into the tabernacle and you went into the Holy of Holies, before in front of the veil was the altar of incense and represented the prayers. And it was this sweet-smelling. It was pleasant. There's joy. And it's pleasant. One of my sons got into incense one time and he was burning incense all over in his room, and some of it smelled good and some of it was absolutely horrible. But the idea behind it was, hey, you know, we want something pleasant. Mood altering, I guess, I don't know. So there's nothing significant about incense. It, it, it's, it's that it's pleasant. Joy and pleasant. So these these four living creatures, the 24 elders, they fall down before him and they're singing a new song. Why is it new? It's because of redemption. Why is it new? Because it's a lamb slain. You see it in the song. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain. And by your blood you've ransomed people for God. From every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. He will redeem and save people from all nations. This is what He's done. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. Priest in the plural, not priest in the singular. We read this in other places in the New Testament, right? We've been made priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. We'll rule and reign with him. We'll see this more in the book of Revelation. So that's the first grouping. Man, this worship erupts. It explodes, this outburst. And then the second grouping in verse 11. And then I looked and heard on the throne the living creatures and the elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands and thousands. In other words, just a way of John saying, I could not count the number. I could not count the number here. And what were they doing? They were saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain. In other words, let's sing it again. You see, it wasn't like, well, let's just, just talk about this lamb that was slain. One, No, let's sing it again. Let's sing it o'er and o'er again, right? Let's keep singing it. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Sevenfold here. Perfection here. Let's sing it again. Untold numbers of angels. And then you see verse 13. Here's the third group. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. In other words, all of creation. You see, we went from one group to a larger group. John couldn't even number the second group. And now it's all of creation that's joined in on this. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. Amen. (laughs) Amen. How could you not say amen to this? Right? How could you not say amen to this? And then it ends with the elders fell down in worship. You see the same pattern. Chapter 4. There he is on the throne. What happens? Worship. Then the lamb. There he is. And what happens? Worship. Worship. And in chapter 5, John has these two emotional experiences that he has. And he's not some casual observer here. He is wrapped up into this. And what he sees is a lamb. A lamb that was slain. Standing in the throne. It's the lamb who can take the scroll. It's the Lamb who is at the center of God's purposes and redemption and judgment. It is the Lord Jesus Christ who is at the center of everything. That's what's being conveyed. What a scene. You see why Revelation 4 and 5 set the stage for the rest of the book of Revelation? Because if you can't see this, then you're not going to understand when chapter 6 starts, and I watched and the Lamb opened one of the seven seals. As he begins to unleash the purposes of God in redemption and judgment. When are we going to stop treating God so casually? When by God's grace... We get, a, we, get a, we get a glimpse of what John saw. We get a glimpse of that. The lamb that was slain. And we understand. We begin to understand the purposes of God. It centers around this lamb. It centers around Christ. And we can't be just some casual observer of this thing. Now you can reject it. You can wholesale reject it and just walk away from it and say, I don't believe any of this. This is just fairy tale stuff. You can do that, and you can go your merry way. But here's the thing. When we understand that he is the lamb that was slain and he's the only one that can come and he's standing in the midst of the throne and he's the only one that can to, that can begin and accomplish the purposes of God and redemption and judgment and so forth, that is true. Regardless of whether you believe it and accept it or not, you can reject it. But he is still Lord of lords. He is still King of kings and Lord of lords. He is still the one and true and only God god and you will deal with him one day so you can try to be a casual observer and reject it and say well i'll dabble with it here and there but you i'm afraid at that point you don't really understand the gospel you know paul tells the philippians in chapter 2 there in verse 9 and 10 every every knee will do what bow every tongue's going to do what of creation will bow and confess. Some will do it out of a heart just like with John when he sees the Lamb and bows in worship and adoration. Others, that knee will be forced down and that tongue will be forced. And they will be cast away into everlasting judgment. But all will acknowledge All will. I promise you, you won't treat him casually in the judgment. You might now. But you will not treat him casually in the judgment. What's in the way, though? And I'll close with this because I think it's an important question. We need to look and examine our own hearts. What's in our way? What's keeping us from this? What's in the way? Well, maybe you don't care. Maybe maybe this church thing and this gospel thing and this Jesus thing is, is just something you figure, well, I probably ought to do and should do and there's there's really no heart for it. You just do it because it's it's a cultural thing you do, or but but there's really no heart for it? You you, you, you really don't don't really care all that much about it? And and probably what's at the heart of that is that you're really not converted. You're not a Christian, you're not a believer, you've never seen Christ in this way. You've never seen Him in His glory. But you might say, no, I really do care. And I sincerely want this. I sincerely want to... Then you come on His terms. You come through Christ. You don't come in any other way. You come on His terms. You turn from your sin and faith and trust in Him. You come through Christ alone. What needs to change? What needs to change in my life? What needs to change in your life? So that we begin to see and understand the very foundation of the book of Revelation in chapter 4 and chapter 5. And that leads to this heartfelt worship of the Lamb. And seeing Christ at the center of everything. Listen, that's what you need in this coronavirus mess. You need to see Christ. That's what you need to see. And look, I'll say this too. How dare we cheapen the book of Revelation? How dare we cheapen the book of Revelation and go from this launching path of chapter 4 and 5 and start chasing all sorts of wild, kooky symbolism? How dare we cheapen the book of Revelation? How dare we cheapen our worship as a church by not centering and focusing On a lamb that was slain and shed his blood for our sins and was raised from the dead. How dare we shift our attention and treat that casually. We will not do it. But if we can do it, what's in the way? What's in the way of us as believers if we're doing it? Maybe we don't understand the working of the Holy Spirit. We don't understand we've not been in the Word of God and we've not allowed the Spirit of God to break His Word over our hearts and minds so that we see Christ. So that we see and understand what Paul says to the Colossians. And so from the day we heard have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the dominion, from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Growing and growing and growing and maturing in the knowledge of God in Christ. And that is the work of God taking His Word through the working of the Holy Spirit and leading us into that. What's in the way? Maybe you're not in the Word enough. Maybe I'm not in the Word enough. what's in the way well maybe it just comes down to just the plain old fact that you're not saved you're not a believer and you, you, just, you, you just don't see it you just don't see it just come to him that's all you gotta do you turn from your sins put your faith and trust in him that's it that's it And when you do, something amazing happens. When you do, he's no longer just a fairy tale. He's no longer just a Sunday school lesson. When you do, he becomes my Savior. You see, the transcendent God of chapter 4, yet personal, why? Because chapter five, it's the Lamb that was slain, and I can know Him. I can know Him. Let's pray together. Father, this is tremendous. This this is this this passage and the way the Book of